Media apathy. Many argue it's a contributor to complex issues in modern day society. Issues like voter turnout and election fatigue, democratic engagement, polarization in politics, just look to our neighbors to the south. The constant talk of politics and everything Donald Trump drives division in U.S. media. It's often amplified and reflected in how newsrooms in Canada cover news in our own backyard. Is it the need to drive ratings in a declining world of viewership and advertising? Is it competition? It's likely a combination of many things. Few legacy broadcasters in Canada, like the CBC and CTV, drive conversation on television. Now layer in social media, talk radio, newspapers, we've got a very similar and divided political spectrum in a time where everyone has a platform and voice. With consumers relying on digital news more than ever before, where do we go from here? How do we help the public care about local news, strengthen healthy discourse in this polarizing time? I'm Winston C. We discuss apathy in media this week on Staying Alive. It's no doubt we live in a world that seems to be spinning faster than ever. Politics, current affairs, sports, entertainment, many topics drive back to ongoing social issues. Real issues that affect marginalized populations, be it social, political, economical, discrimination or exclusion. But just because there's a difference in opinion doesn't mean we can't have a healthy dialogue. If anything, in many cases, this is paramount to a healthy media ecosystem. I can't think of anyone more appropriate to speak to facilitating these kinds of critical conversations than Shireen Ahmed, a senior contributor for the CBC, CBC Sports, a grad of the Master of Arts in Media Production at Toronto Metropolitan University, and teaches sports media at the Creative School. Shireen, welcome. Thank you for having me, Winston. I so appreciate you coming on. And it's such an interesting time when it comes to public engagement in the media. Now, you cover a range of social issues in sports media, and you've done so so eloquently. And also, you do so on a variety of legacy broadcasters. You previously worked with TSN, and now you work at the public broadcaster, the CBC. Now, sports is a tough space to challenge the, quote, norm, pushing against dated ways of thinking. So I want to start off by asking you, what drives your motivation to continue this conversation and so many important discussions in this space? Well, well, thank you for that. And and noting that, you know, it's not always easy is, I think, really important here. But the work in journalism never is. And storytelling and capturing truths as they, they come out, whether it's stories of athletes or providing context for issues is really important to me. And I firmly believe that sports has been a catalyst for so many important discussions. And one of the greatest platforms since the murder of George Floyd in 2022 talk about things such as racial injustice, to talk about homophobia, and right now transphobia in sports. That's really come to a point where there's a complete persecution of people from that community. Those things are really important to me. And I truthfully, I get accused of why are you ruining sports or making it political? But for me, someone who's a racialized hijab wearing woman, my identity within sports has always been political. So, I, you know, I think about that from that lens. And everything we do is political. No one will ever be able to convince me that sports isn't. 
I think that journalists really need a place to be able to discuss things. And I want my students to think that way as well. How do you take the criticism that you get online? Because no doubt in the work that you do, a lot of it is based in engagement and you get a lot of comments on Twitter. This is a conversation I have, and I'm grateful for the women and non-binary folks in this space, is because we support each other as a community. And I manage it very well that way. I've learned from others. I've also learned how I don't want to deal with it. I don't engage. I don't respond. Because I'm busy doing the work. And if women, racialized folks, or those in the margins, queer journalists spent all their time battling people who are being abusive, we wouldn't have time to do the actual work. Twitter and, and those places was a place once upon a time where you could talk to others in DMs and offer support or show solidarity via social media for someone. It was a really important journalistic tool in the sports space because the fastest way to disseminate a score was definitely through Twitter. The faster that you put out something or publish, the faster you can get commentary. I publish a column weekly and then I have an online notebook, which is called Joy Drop, which is supposed to be like literally just happy things. And you would be shocked or perhaps not how quickly people jump in there to be really mean to me. That particular thing is not supposed to be at the height of critical analysis. My columns on Monday are. There's some people that are going to come at you regardless of what you say. Sort of keep that in mind as I go. And then I get support. And Winston, truthfully, people like you, like my friends and my community and colleagues from around the world, that the women in sports space is really not a big one. It's a fairly small community, like in England or Australia or South Africa. I have friends all over the world, South America, the United States. So we know each other. So we really lean on each other and provide that support and encouragement. One of the things that we talk about in media quite often is apathy. And, you know, you look at what is happening stateside with the upcoming U.S. elections again. You look at what's happening right here at home, and then you look at spaces like sport, where there is always conversation that is parallel to what is happening in society. There is a growing divide of trust between the media and the public. How does the online media play into this kind of social public discourse? Do you believe that social media drives apathy in media when we look through the lens of legacy media as it exists today? So the sports space is really interesting. It's one of the places where we face the most resistance and having conversations that make people uncomfortable. But if you're being intentionally anti-oppressive, intentionally anti-racist, anti-homophobic, and combating anti-indigeneity or xenophobia, anti-Semitism, whatever, the readers would be like, no, no, we, we don't want that. You know, we don't want any of that. And I don't know if I would say it's as much apathy because I've seen quite a bit of compassion from the sports world and the, from the public who are really engaged in these conversations. And I find that heartening. I like to hear as much as I get comments that are not nice. I have gotten emails from people who are really quite kind and saying, you know, I didn't think of it like that. One example is when Queen Elizabeth died and I wrote a piece on the daughter of identifying in South Asian heritage and the effect of colonialism, I don't need to explain to anybody. And they know it's it's all there. And, and just the effect on how that played out in sports. I wrote a column and somebody wrote me and said, I really never thought of it that way and the impact it would have on future generations. Like nobody considered intergenerational trauma. So when you add these pieces into it, I like to be optimistic and say the glass is half full because also keeping in mind that those telling the stories 
don't look like me. My vertical in sports journalism and sport media in Canada is probably 93 to 95% white, able-bodied, cis-hats. And that also impacts how those stories are told and how people receive them. So I think of you talking about how you are one of a few in Canada to really push these conversations in sports. You are a woman, you are a racialized woman. Do you look up to anyone as you do this really important work? Who are some of your role models? One person who has given me support from day one is Morgan Campbell, who is now a colleague. Morgan was the first person in this entire industry to look at me, give me a nod and say, wow, yeah, you're smart. I think Morgan is incredible. And it's no mistake that he's a black man who helped keep the door open for me when it was heavy and felt like it kept closing. Dave Zirin, who is the editor for The Nation in the United States, is one of the reasons why I think I'm here. I saw his work, Critical Analysis on Race, He didn't dive so much into gender because obviously being a man, he weighed in on things that were important, but also created space. In fact, one of my interactions with him online was me tweeting him and going, are you going to let a woman talk about women's issues or are you just going to keep doing it? And to his credit, he replied and said, do you want to come on my show? Christine Simpson has been in hockey broadcasting for a really long time. Tara Sloan, Kayla Gray. I mean, Kayla's younger than me, but, you know, of course we can look up, up to those younger than us. I look up to my students. It doesn't mean you have to get along and agree with everyone's viewpoint. There's another woman, Amrit Gill, who I think is fantastic. She worked hockey night Punjabi. Definite shout out to the academics, Dr. Courtney Sito, Dr. Nicole Neverson, and my co-hosts that burn it all down of the podcast I co-created, those people, because it's it's a tough space to exist in. And that's when I mentioned community. So I'm grateful to everybody who's in that space that I can look to for guidance and look to for helping you know, fuel the fire. I want to go back to trust and news. You work with the public broadcaster. And according to Pew Research, U.S. adults under 30 now trust information from social media almost as much as from a national news outlet. What is your reaction when you hear a statistic like that? Because I think it's really interesting that you work in both a legacy media environment, but also publish online and engage with your readers and viewers on social media. One of the things that troubles me about that is I do get a lot of my own information online. It's from specific sites where I know that editorially there is a responsibility that's adhered to. I have published online from everything national, international platforms, but I've also published at West End Phoenix locally in Toronto and I've published in Time Magazine. The intentionality behind my practice is the same at both places. You're not more ethical uh, when you report more professionally and precisely for a bigger outlet. It doesn't work like that. You put all of yourself into your work irrespective of where you are publishing. But my problem is With the online stuff, sometimes I feel like people don't credit photojournalists or don't uh, put hyperlinks in or aren't able to because of a word count. That does worry me because those pieces are actually really important. Whether someone's broken a story, you sort of give them a nod or something like that. And there's some sites that have a better reputation, journalistically speaking. I'm someone who firmly believes in independent media, grassroots media, because I was independent for so long. You stand by the principles and ethics at the place and the standards of practice, but sometimes journalists get away with a little more than I think should be done. And I know that timing and deadlines are excruciatingly important, but at the same time, there are certain things that will lead to that mistrust. 
this is something that we need to pay attention to in the journalism industry, and I think we're a little late for, at how tangible people think that formats like Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok are. And, and they are legitimate forms of storytelling. I teach them in my class, but you can still be responsible as you do that. You can still tell a whole story responsibly. And I don't see people doing that. And I think shortcuts are not a good thing. If you do your best to do that, then you're providing a good story with a good basis and good context and a solid foundation. And that's all you can do. The conversation comes up all the time about a place like Six Buzz, where they're getting their photos, where they're getting their information, where is this happening from? And I think that we're in a time that everyone wants to snap their fingers really quickly and just get information instantaneously. And that worries me a little bit. And there's often a misunderstanding of news. And, you know, I think of terms like misinformation or fake news. We know former President Donald Trump used those words quite often. Just because one doesn't agree with a piece of reporting doesn't necessarily make it fake news. But at the same time, just because it's on the news, and we know there are news outlets out there that purport to be news but are flooded with opinion, doesn't mean that it's true. So do you believe there's a bigger importance of demystifying disinformation nowadays? Yeah, I really, I think that's such an important topic and one that I would love to see on like a panel of journalists and and discuss like was the harm that was created when he started talking about fake news. If you didn't like a specific viewpoint, then you were, you were discarded and your merit was sort of thrown aside, which was incredibly horrifying and really frustrating for journalists in the margins who politically didn't like what Donald Trump was saying, we're still reporting. Or even in this country, we know that racism doesn't stop and and that certainly occurs in Canada. But we saw that happening here. I get a lot of that on my comments. I am factually explaining what happened and breaking down something and hyperlinking and making sure. And to be very honest with you, Winston, and you know this, I've talked to you about it. I double check everything I do. I triple check it because I can't have room for error. Because as we talked about earlier, the abuse hurled at me, if I do make a mistake, is, is pretty intense. So I have to be really careful. You know, my editor is quite vigilant. But at the same time, there's some people out there that whatever I say, they're like, oh, this is wrong. It's not fake news. That's something that's said to discredit journalists. I find it so frustrating when I see it because one of the things as journalists that you pride yourself in is that you put work into making sure that it is credited information. It's a distraction mechanism and it's a tool of white supremacy, in my opinion, for those that are working with any type of anti-oppression lens or even that are just basically reporting. I mean, I knew friends in the United States that were so scared to do their jobs because of this. And you can't be tentative as a journalist. You got to go in. You got to go in fully. If you can't do your job the way you're supposed to, then it's terrible. It's not a good thing at all. So when I hear fake news, it really bugs me. Uh, You brought up abuse, hate comments, threats. You know, that's something that is a reality for many journalists who are publishing material online. Luckily, you have the resource of editors at the CBC to be able to help you fact check and to make sure that you get it right. But of course, we know many independent voices don't have access to those same voices. Do you think abuse, hate comments, threats discourages diverse voices in Canadian media? 
I'm a believer in independent journalism, but that doesn't mean I do everything from start to finish on my own. Whether, you know, I've published in Chatelaine or published at the Walrus, they'll have somebody fact-checking, they'll have an editor or two, a copy editor, and then someone else working with me. But I do think it's really important, and I can't stress this enough to people, for journalists, for writers, whether it's audio or video, to really pay attention to the minutiae. I teach at a school of journalism as well. I have students that sometimes intern and they've come back and said, well, you know, the producer or the editor said that we shouldn't hyperlink because it'll take someone away from our site. Well, that's no, then fight for it. Insist. I've been in positions where I've had no power. And I said, no, I want that hyperlink in there. And one particular place I worked for were so like, no, we're not doing that. So when I tweeted out the story, I actually physically tweeted out source from this, 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 this because I felt compelled to do so. Sometimes it drives my editor a little, he's a little, he's very patient with me, let's put it that way. And I've actually had people reach out to me and say, well, why didn't you hyperlink this that I said it? And if they're Black, Indigenous, or for a racialized community, I really want to give them that attention and help amplify those whose voices aren't traditionally amplified. And as far as the abuse goes, I mean, you sort of deal with that on a day-to-day. And I'm not saying that people are getting used to me because there are still folks out there that are really angry that the sports department decided to hire a brown hijab-wearing woman to tell them their sports. Some people just will never get over it. But that that is not a me problem. That's a, that's a them problem. And as long as I'm doing what I need to do and I have the support of my colleagues and where I work, that means a lot to me. Because I work at the CBC, the comments are always open as a part of our policy because we're the public broadcaster. I'm not going to say I don't scroll the comments. I do. So one time I wrote a piece on Bobby Hall, who was canned basically from being the Chicago NHL team's ambassador because he had allegedly been abusive and there were stories written about it. I had written a column that I didn't think he was the right person. And it was a good thing that he was dismissed from that role. People got really, really angry and finally had to kind of say to my editor, who also doesn't monitor the comments, there's people that are being like violent, like that are being really hateful. And then he shut the comments down. People will find me via my email address or they'll find me via my website. I had one person go as far as to get into my DMs on Instagram and tell me what a terrible person I am. You see the lengths that people go through to be terrible. You get to see a side of people that isn't always pretty. So that's why I really appreciate being able to do Joy Drop (laughs) because it lets me focus on, on joy as a form of resistance. And that is in sport in particular, that's something that has really resonated with me. Now, when we look at media, we can look at legacy media, we can look at online media, television, radio, there are multiple camps. So there's a camp that news is news. And then, of course, there are people that I would say, like you, who offer context through news reporting. And then you look at other outlets, and there's pure opinion, which we know sometimes always isn't um, uh, based in fact. Where is the line? How do we change the narrative on journalism's role in society? Is it making it clearer what is opinion and what is news? How do we build that trust with the public? Part of what I'm really interested in doing is bridging gaps between academics and journalists because the research is being done by academics and and, and researchers, but sometimes there's no public access to that information. So I also consider that pool of, you know, sports sociologists, cultural anthropologists, sports historians, those who are working in those spaces, part of my arsenal. 
But at the same time, I do actually really rely and scaffold off of the work of beat journalists. There's a particular journalist in my office named named Miles Dichter, and I will work off Miles's work. I will use CBC or Canadian Press Wire stories in my own column. I'm very careful to stay informed. I need to be aware of reporting around me, around this issue, make sure my research is up to date before I get out there and say something in particular because I'm acutely aware of how I pause it and what I look like as well. Punditry is, is not journalism. Punditry is punditry. For somebody to get in there and start making wide generalist comments and generalizations, it's pretty dangerous because, like I said before, people don't always understand the different roles in media. And a pundit isn't a journalist. They're not trained the same way. They don't have the same purpose. And, you know, just as a columnist is a different role than someone who's reporting from the ground. Um, And all of those things can be important, but I think they need to be applied carefully in their own way. Do you believe there's a balanced way to build and sustain trust with audiences, but still foster a healthy space for these kinds of social and political discussions? I believe that journalism was meant to be dynamic. And we've seen, particularly since 2020, since the murder of George Floyd, the way that sport has been used to uh, be a vehicle for conversations about race and about justice and about police brutality and about so many other things. So there is a way that we can shift and do that. But I think some places are more reluctant. And because of the fact that newsrooms are predominantly white and may not have that same understanding, the demographic of, of, of people who make decisions is all the same. Having fresh perspectives and people from different lenses is really important. What I think about a lot is who's missing from the room, who's not here, who is not offering perspective. I think about that a lot. In Canada, there is not a single full-time Indigenous sports journalist. And I think about who's kind of pointing the direction of where we're looking and is it the same lens that we're looking through. I really do think that journalists really need to have faith in their readers, their listeners, their viewers, and and what they're putting out there. You have to know that the public trusts you to tell them the truth or tell them something that is sensible in that way. The truth of a black athlete, it's not going to necessarily be the same as a white owner. You tell the stories as they come, and that's important. Sometimes I feel like my job is to compare the two and say, well, look, there's two different perspectives, and here's the one coming from the black athlete that might not get the amplification that it serves. Now, we know there's no solution, but there are practices that can support positive discourse in these very complex topics. So I want to end things on a positive note. Where do you see optimism and opportunity in many of these spaces where conversations are challenging these longtime status quos? I think there's a practice, there's certain practices that are being adopted more widely. One is harm reduction. Our job is not to do harm, right? And that's something that I've really wanted to also impart on my students. Abuse in sport is a huge topic right now. And we've discovered through incredible journalism that NSOs in this country are really in crisis. And looking at something with an anti-oppression lens and seeing that more often and seeing people provide or look for experts that are racialized or from marginalized communities, that gives me a lot of hope, too, that we're not all looking to the same experts. 
One of the most optimistic things I've always seen is the growth of women's sport. Because in the women's sports space, you're not just a woman covering women's sports or a woman athlete or a non-binary athlete covering that or a trans athlete covering that. We're here advocating for our own existence at the same time. But to see the way with grace that people do it is outstanding to me. And one of the things that brings me the most joy, truly, it's a lot of work, but is teaching. And seeing the direction the students are going in and the way that they're thinking and that I have the privilege to be able to stand there and talk to them about, well, how are you going to go at this story? Which way will you go at this? I see them and it brings me a lot of hope. We get them when they're not jaded. They're excited about it. It's a very difficult time. Also, the pandemic shifted a lot of things in the industry, but sometimes disruptions lead to new pathways. I'm excited to see in this country in particular, because Canada is quite stagnant in the way that can have conversations about race or about justice. And I like the direction that it's going. I think I liked what you said. Disruption really leads to new pathways. I think it's so important to have healthy dialogue. It's one of the best ways to drive public engagement, especially in these archaic systems where the status quo hasn't changed in so long. So it's these conversations that will really push that forward. So thank you so much for your work that you do, Shireen. I know I'm a personal fan of yours. I listen to your podcast. I know we're personal friends as well. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on Staying Alive. Yeah, and thank you so much, Winston, the work that you're doing about local newsrooms and their importance and news in general is invaluable. And I'm so grateful. And thank you for having me on the show. It was a, it was a bucket list. Shireen Ahmed is a senior contributor for the CBC, CBC Sports, and of course, teaches sports media at the Creative School at Toronto Metropolitan University. Next episode, we discuss representation in Canadian broadcasting. How do we sustain and support representation in all communities across Canada? And how do we shift the way we tell stories and do so in a meaningful manner? That's next on Staying Alive. I'm Winston C. Thanks for listening.